Dad, do you want to tell us about the house? It's a very comfortable building. Why? Because of the atmosphere and the design. It's comfy. It has a carpet and it's comfy. We've got windows overlooking a pond. And so even if I had to stay in this room for a long time, it would be okay. It's not like stifling. It's not um, emotionally stifling because it looks out to the outside world. I think it's critical that where you feel at peace, you need to be surrounded by those kinds of, uh, that atmosphere. Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and day-to-day lives. I'm Brian. And I'm Chantel. And this week, we are zooming out a little bit and looking at the concept of personal space. So last week, we talked about how your brain sees itself in relation to itself and This week, we want to talk about how your brain sees yourself in relation to other people, which that kind of idea is often manifested in the concept of personal space. Yeah, so just to get an idea, so personal space in the 1960s, an American anthropologist named Edward Hall kind of made a visual idea of it, saying that personal space is described as within 18 inches of you. He called that intimate space. And then within about a foot and a half to four feet from you is called personal space. Between four feet and 12 feet was what he considered to be social space. And then past that was public space. I I like those ideas. They're kind of like, I can picture these bubbles like floating around you, kind of offset from from yourself. And and I think if you picture, I mean, 12 feet, I'm trying to think of like a good, how people could picture what 12 feet is. It's like your bed is like six feet long. Mm -hmm. So double that. Two two beds (laughs) long. Two beds away from you. That's like I would I would think someone that far away has kind of like no I wouldn't think they're in my Can space at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a foot and a half to four feet. Like when you sit on the train, you're definitely within that, and you can tell that like a person next to you is like in your space. Yeah, and that's why I think it's interesting how architecture sort of goes on to be designed in a way that fosters different ways that people interact with each other, and that's why there's certain designs around. Things like a school, like a kindergarten versus elementary school, middle school, high school. You start to, if you think back, you know how your kindergarten was designed differently, how people were sitting in it differently than in high school when it was very like everyone who was a student was on one side of the room and everyone was facing the teacher who was on the other side of the room and their desk was facing each other. And then when you think of your home, it's totally different from a restaurant and a restaurant is totally different from a coffee shop. And so we have all these different minor understandings of these different public spaces where you interact with someone who's sort of close to you or very close or kind of far differently. I like those examples because think like your dining room, a restaurant and a coffee shop, you're doing like the same thing in all those places. You're eating, you're drinking, you're maybe like sharing a meal with someone, but your idea of your, the kind of size of your comfortable personal space around you is totally different. In your home, like your guard is totally dropped. Someone could sit very close to you and you obviously the family or, or, or your partner or something. So your, your roommate, so they don't feel like they're invading. But if you were at like a coffee shop and someone sat within a foot of you, yeah, hey. <laughs> they're like all up in your business. <laughs> like, I would be very uncomfortable. People are very smart when it comes to architecture because we've existed in it in our whole lives. So. Yeah, they're like inherently smart. Yeah, because you know what it 
does, like how it's instructing you to act. And that's why we have this almost underlying vocabulary of like, I'm entering this space, which means I'm going to talk at this level and I'm going to act with these people. I'm going to sit this close to certain people. And then there's other places where you're like, I can scream if I want to. (laughs) And everyone's running and jumping and all these things. And so we have this idea of expectation of what is happening where and what belongs where and what can exist where. Yeah. And a lot of that, uh, besides kind of how you, as we talked about the first episode, how you see yourself is really like this, how you see the space around you and how that space can kind of shrink or grow or allow certain people into it and not others. And, and a lot of that is, is to do with the, the space around you and the like expectations that come with that. That idea of expectation, I think, ties into this idea of almost like what's accepted in certain areas, how you experience different places, especially public spaces, and what happens to you in them, how you watch people acting within them. You develop over time this cultural understanding of how people are performing. And what's interesting with public space is it over time begins to reflect and embed in a way in your mind, like this is what's happening and this is what's not happening. And so what can happen with like social hierarchies and different cultures and minorities and discrimination is that you see hate and you see acceptance and you start to understand what is okay to do where space can start to reflect even what would you consider accepting space. Like you're like, oh, I should inherently be able to act however I want at a coffee shop. They're inherently accepting at the same time you can still have this weird fear and you don't know where that's coming from these like built-in structures and kind of unconscious lessons and and like an unconscious history you're pulling from because of who you identify as and and what groups you belong to even something like walking down the street certain people feel like they might be more confident and their sense of kind of the space that they own around them in relationship to the other people on the sidewalk is very different than other people, even something as simple as like the whatever what gender you are, that totally changes how you feel in public and how you feel about the other people around you in public. Yeah, and the first line I started my thesis off with was this idea that public space is the domain in which societal standards, hierarchies, and values are asserted and contested. It's like the space where what's socially acceptable is performed. And so how you see yourself in that can alter how it is that you organically perform that idea of like your true self coming out, like what you allow to come out, what you don't. And it doesn't mean that it's bad that you're not letting out your deepest desires and whatnot. Um, There is a level of law in how we control ourselves, but at the same time, like what is that law representing? Yeah. Like, like the expectations of, of what you should do in public space include like, like, not, like not just punching everybody in the yeah, face. Like <laughs> violent and like like wearing clothes. Those are good expectations. Like those are <laughs> yeah. good societal standards that you feel. Yeah. Uh, but then but, this like underlying level almost of, of how we think that we should be acting in these different cultural standards. Once they start getting applied, that's also the kind of law that we subconsciously apply as well. And we learn that through the different spaces that we're in. And so I think what we're getting at is that all these these expectations and standards, they're uh, driven sometimes by architecture. Architecture helps construct them, and also the architecture around you reflects them. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, like a reciprocal relationship around them. So w- what we're really going to focus on here as kind of a super poignant uh, example of all these standards and your conception of your own personal space is the home. 
So I know, Chantal, you did a lot of research into this kind of idea of the home during your thesis. Maybe you could kind of start to walk me through it and and uh, bring up some examples for how to unpack all these different layers of meaning. Yeah, so one of the biggest examples that I looked into at first in my thesis that a lot of critics brought up when they were talking about the home and how dynamics can affect how people see themselves in relation to even just their family members in a home was the dining table. So historically, a house that was typically talked about was by an architect named Alvaro Alto. It was in Finland and it was designed in the 1930s. It was called the Villa Mayara, I think. Yeah, just like we don't speak Dutch, we also don't speak Finnish. Uh, So (laughs) it's M-A-I-R-E-A. Maybe Maria? I don't know. Yeah, so it was described as being, quote-unquote, traditional family roles was what it was representing. And Harry, the husband, was you know, designed to sit at the head of the dining table. And it had a full view of the house, the entire family, and all the public space in the home, including the front door, the levels in which people would come in. Whereas the wife sat at the opposite side of the table as him, if you can imagine that. And what she looked at was her husband, and he actually had a fireplace behind him. So it was this idea that the husband was glowing. And then she had a good view out of these giant windows that looked at a garden. And then the kids kind of just looked at their parents. And there wasn't too much view in either of their directions. Um, But what people described it as was reflecting this idea that the husband was in a way in control of who was entering the house, if there was a threat, who was in the house, how they were operating the public space, like how the, the whole like dynamics of the house where everybody else just looked at him as being the person that gives the signal to whatever's going on. Yeah, I think it's really easy to picture. I mean, I think all of us can can picture a very like formal dining room in our minds and kind of what that that comes with and and kind of that implies. And you can totally see here how that that idea of a of a gender role would be super manifest in the architecture, even if it's not something that you like think about every time you sit down to dinner yeah. or even not something that's like especially malicious. It's not yeah. like it's yeah. not like the father's a tyrant and he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's ruling his family. But it he has power. He's given power because of the way that the architecture just designed. Yeah, Yeah, and historically, the father figure was always looked at as the breadwinner. Um, So nowadays, it's hard to think about how all these old-fashioned roles are brought in and designed into today's values when not even... Most people aren't even paying for their homes to be specifically designed for them. So a lot of people just don't even... They just buy a house, and they put the dining table when they want. But I think it's interesting, like, during my thesis especially, I was talking to a lot of people and I was like, picture a big table in a room and then picture a bunch of people just entering the room and think about where you would sit at a table when you know that there's a lot of other people around the table and there's a bunch of empty seats, like, where you would inherently tell yourself to sit at. And I was always telling people, I was like, I would never, ever tell myself to sit at the head of the table because I'd be like, I don't deserve that spot. But then I think of my dad, and I was like, my dad would probably fight for that spot because he'd be like, I've lived my life. Yeah. Like, I, I deserve it. See. You know, but at the same time, like, my mom probably would also never assume that she had that spot. Yeah, it's a really clear, like, a clear manifestation on a super small scale of this mm-hmm. like much bigger idea. Yeah. But I, I think it's clear and I, I think it's very relatable. So this architectural writer named Mark Girard, G-I-R-O-U-A-R-D, 
Uh, he described the process of moving through a home, and he called it the axis of honor. So as Sounds person, fancy. Right? <laughs> Never think of your house, moving through your house, you're like going to your bedroom, you're like, the axis of honor. Axis of honor. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he described it as when the way that homes historically have been designed is that you enter into an entry, maybe a mud room, and then there's the living room, there's this public space, and then you go further back and there's places like the library and a drawing room, and then there's a kitchen further back, and typically the last place that you would wind up is is the bedrooms. Um, and the idea of that was that the bedrooms were thought to be the most intimate space for the owners of the home. So this axis of honor were was representing the phases of a home that you go through that was almost in a way penetrating this idea of personal space for the owners. So your home becomes this physical embodiment of these layers of personal space that a person yeah, has. What's interesting is to think about as you move through this axis of honor, you kind of move through the the four bubbles of space that Edward Hall described. You start in the entrance, you could still definitely maintain a 12-foot kind of public space bubble uh, you're not really comfortable. And then as you move through to a library and then finally a bedroom, you, you get into much more intimate space. You're, you really kind of, you're, you're moving through those, those bubbles. Yeah. And the idea is that the further you move in, the higher status is in relation to the owners of that house. So then if we were to even think further into each space it is that we're entering and the purpose of each of those spaces, we can start to develop almost a vocabulary for the purpose of each space and how historically architects designed them with a very specific purpose, with very specific styles, materials, furniture to represent certain actions for certain people and how those relate to that axis of honor who is allowed through them and past them and into them and forward. So if we go back to the 1780s, there was actually an architect named Nicolas Le Camus, um, and he was known for descri- thoroughly describing um, the rooms that he described as gentlemen's rooms and rooms that he described as ladies' rooms, and we're not talking about just bathrooms either. Um, so he thought that gentlemen's rooms were actually places like the library, the dining room. The idea was that there were places where politics were talked about and... Logic, yeah. And the drawing rooms and the kitchen were places for women, which were designed with silk and soft things and rosewood, which was a softer wood. And they had makeup tables, and he described them as being unsuitable for long periods of time. And they were beneficial for working on small crafts and taking naps, where <laughs> which were known for as women things. Yeah, and masculine qualities were predominantly having solid oak and mahogany and flat planes. A lot of the furniture had 90 degree angles. There were carpet and dark, heavy furniture, woods, all that stuff. Yeah. I think even like if you had just thought of, if if you were asked to picture kind of like a man cave Mm -hmm. now, you would think of those same materials, that same aesthetic, that same mood versus if you had to think of like, a girl's room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a girl for a little room would be pink and silk and soft. And, and butterflies. Those are and, yeah. associations that I think are very obvious and quite, uh, people do think a lot about what, what those mean. Yeah. But what we're interested in and in, in is the ways that the architecture really reinforces that and reflects back on your idea of self and your idea of where you belong mm-hmm. and what space belongs to you, where you can be comfortable. Yeah. And that's kind of how it gets difficult if you want to go beyond those boundaries, why sometimes architecture 
can prevent that in a way because of the ways that certain places are designed and what rooms are related to other rooms. Like historically, a lot of the feminine rooms, the rooms for women, you couldn't go from one of them to another without passing through what was thought to be the male gaze, like the male controlled spaces. Also, a lot of the rooms for women were in certain places of the houses because back in the day when women were in corsets and stuff, it was too difficult for them to walk from one place to the other. So because it was physically incapable to get to the places where people were talking about politics, women were never associated. Yeah. I was talking to a colleague today and he brought up the idea that architecture doesn't force anyone to do anything, but it opens certain possibilities and denies others, which I think mm-hmm. is really nice and kind of a nuanced way of looking at it. And it totally does. If, if you have to wear a corset and can't get up a steep, steep set of stairs or can't get through a very narrow door because of, of what you're expected to wear, that you've been denied the possibility of entering that space. So a specific example of this kind of house was actually the Bearwood House. It was designed by Robert Kerr in 1865. Um, and the idea was that all the spaces, well, the whole house itself was designed as uncontrolled freedom for male members, whereas all the female members couldn't walk from one space to another without passing through the male gaze. Yeah, and it's a it's a huge, it's like an English country manner. So it was meant for like like big social gatherings and... Mm-hmm. and and kind of the the elite of, of British society. Mm-hmm. And so it really had these these kind of expectations and, and gendered standards like deeply built into it. And what was difficult talking about these kinds of things during my thesis was a, the biggest argument was that, well, all of these are very historic houses that you're talking about. Like, how are they applying to today's fashion? And I think the biggest idea is that it's maybe not necessarily such a clear distinction of like this room that I'm designing is designed to control these people and discriminate against these other people, but more so that these old designs and aesthetics that we are inspired by, we're just bringing them blindly into our designs today. And they might hold still those different concepts that people have already had as underlying understanding of what belongs where and who belongs where and what we do where and even though we're not saying it anymore those types of designs are subconsciously being brought into what we're expecting nowadays yeah i think a really great example that we've talked about before is the open floor plan Mm -hmm. i think that's it's obviously a super trendy word uh which doesn't have a lot of like specific meaning but it's a it's a thing i think if you ask people oh what do you want in a house or what do you want in an apartment oh they want an open floor plan which that has a ton of history uh, behind the, the movement towards that. But part of that history is the idea of, of being able to watch and being able to look at everyone uh, who moves through the space. Yeah, so George Wagner actually did this whole analysis of the Playboy's bachelor pad, which in the 1960s blew up as being a space for the ideal man. Yeah, I think probably if you Google it, you will have seen these drawings of the the Playboy bachelor pad. Yeah, it was very, very huge in its time. And one of the biggest aspects of it was it was this introduction of the open floor plan and what that meant and why men should want it. And they even describe, they go as far to describe the ideal man as being someone, if you didn't like this space, you were either a loser or you were gay, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is a very specific word choice. (laughs) And it's such a clear distinction of like, back in the day, people were a lot more clear about what they did, you know? And And now I think people, they still... They look at an open floor plan and they go, oh, that looks maybe retro or that pulls upon the yeah. post-war modernist design, which it totally does. 
in all these things that, that don't have to do with these expectations, but that undercurrent and that, that base of hierarchy and, and being able to watch are still there, un, like you said, unconsciously. The male owner could maintain watch over whoever it was was visiting. And I think it's that idea of this space and the design of the space reflecting a sense of ownership and authority and control that a lot of people nowadays are drawn to by the open floor plan. A lot of people say that they like the open floor plan because it gives them the ability to see everything. It gives them the, the ability to maintain control over their home, which is comforting. And that's why a lot of these designs, it's not to say, the analysis of them is not to say that they're bad. It's more just to say like this effect that this design had is being brought into today. And this is why we're drawn to it. It does apply this sense of ownership and authority, which can be very empowering and important to a home. Yeah, these social standards and, and concepts and ideas are reinforced by the architecture and and reflected inside the architecture. The idea of this subject of the person who owns it, the person who's visiting, and how they're interacting with each other is something that Michael Foucault, who's that famous French philosopher that we talked about being very fancy in the last episode, very fancy French philosopher. Um, so he describes the idea as a subject as inherently inhabiting a form of authority already. Like once you have a subject, yeah, once you have a subject, it's either being watched or is watching. So authority is already being presented into that. So what's important about this idea of why we're talking about all these ideas of space and relation to other space and how people are acting in them and how that connects to the idea of personal space is this idea of the gaze being able to see someone else, being able to watch someone else has this effect of going across those physical borders, those physical layers of 18 inches, a foot and a half, four feet, 12 feet. Your gaze, your ability to see someone can span that. Yeah, yeah, the, the power structures built into the layout of, of your house can really can really upend what you would think is kind of the standard physical uh, uh, constraints of personal space. Being able to, to watch someone and, and see where they move, now maybe they don't really have any personal space. You're, you're kind of always with them because you're, you can watch them. Yeah, so because of the architecture, it really affects, and this built environment around you, it really affects this idea that even though, you know, 18 inches is intimate space, if you're standing against the wall, that 18 inches doesn't span past the wall. It, it then projects further out into the space. What you can see, that phenomena of feeling more comfortable when you have your back up against the wall, that ability to see what's in front of you and not being watched from behind you, helps you feel that sense of comfort and control over your personal space, your space that's around you. Foucault actually goes on to say that everything that's not subject to that active control, that active gaze, that idea that someone's watching you, controlling you, anything that's not subject to that is what's understood to be a person's true self. So it's interesting to think about what is my organic performance, like how and where is it that I'm acting like my truth itself authentically, when you think about how every space kind of fosters some sort of performance. Yeah, we've talked a lot about all these layers of, of meaning and expectation and standards kind of inherent to just about every space, even something as private as your own bedroom. Does that really allow you to, uh, to behave as your own true self? I don't know. I might disagree with, uh, with our boy Foucault on this one. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it just seems like if, you, if, it, if his argument is that if you're not under someone else's control, then you're being your true self. But we're arguing that really everywhere kind of has some element of maybe not control, but 
a suggestion of what you should be and how you should act and how you should talk to other people and, and what it means to be yourself. Can you, can you act as your true self, even if no one else is around? So I have a friend who says that with all of these ideas of something that's controlling something else, so this idea that architecture is controlling you and making you perform through all of it, you still have free will. So no matter what, it's almost like everything is in a way like a suggestion and it's up to you to determine like how you're going to take control of that in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it goes back to that idea that we talked about in the first episode of everything being in relation to something else. So even though it is your free choice, like you still go to places in a way that you want to act that way in. Yeah, yeah. These are all just kind of other, you talked about last episode in the, uh, the kind of tapestry that is social like our social understanding and as you pull one thread you impact all these others i think these are all just powerful and unseen threads but they're still there you can still you know pull on them and go the other way but they're they're kind of underlying everything So a question comes about that when you're in the home and all these, we start to understand that all these spaces are, you know, you cook in a kitchen and you live in the living room and you sleep in your bedroom and all these, there's all these different performances that happen in a space. And historically, certain spaces are designed for certain people. And even though it doesn't really feel that way anymore, what's interesting is when conflict arises in a home, whether it's an apartment or a house, people start to respond inherently in that primal instinct type of way to the spaces that they're in. And in studies, it shows that that can have a correlation to whether or not you feel as though you're in power or in control of that space. Yeah, even in a very like extreme way. Yeah, so when you think about a home where there's equal ownership, so maybe consider an apartment where there's different roommates that pay equal rent or some sort of rent to live in that space. There's common areas and then there's distinct single ownership spaces. And then you have this idea of maybe a home where two people both pay for it and they think of it as being equally theirs and they share every single room. When conflict arises, in spaces where there's distinct and clear spaces that are meant for specific individuals to retreat to and claim ownership of. And so like a, your own bedroom. Yeah, where there's a boundary line that this other person won't invade your space, the chances of conflict turning into something that's violent are much less. Where in cases where, you know, when we think about a typical, maybe a, an entire home where two people own it or whatever, when a conflict arises and there's no specific place for someone to retreat to and claim ownership of, where there's a boundary, probably a clear physical boundary of a door or whatever, the chances of conflict turning into something that's violent are higher. Yeah, you feel like you have nowhere to go. So in 2009, this guy Richard Gais just gills gills g-e-l-l-e-s did a study in 12 european countries where most sexual assault and physical assault and rape would take place and in the study it showed that the most violent instances have to happen more often than not in the home with either a current partner or former partner in the home of a current or former partner and what he determined from that is that somehow public space became a lot actually safer in these cases than being in the home, which was really interesting to think about. And then from there, he started to study the idea of murder and where murder was taking taking place within the home. And in cases of murder, when the victim was female, it more often than not occurred in the bedroom, whereas in the cases where the victim was male, it more often than not occurred in the kitchen. And what I think that that reflects is that in these moments of 
fight or flight and these moments of instantaneous response, people often retreated to and claimed territory and ownership over places where maybe they felt the most empowered. Maybe not because typically socially nowadays, you know, women belong in the kitchen, but because historically we've had this subconscious understanding that they're the most powerful in the kitchen. Yeah, for hundreds of years, the like the physical environment has created these power structures and these social hierarchies uh, that make people in a very deep unconscious way feel more powerful in certain areas of their own homes. Even if you ask them consciously, they would, oh, no, it's whatever. Yeah. Oh. I don't belong in the kitchen or, or my husband can cook too. It's when they they really are pushed to the edge, those things come out. So a lot of what we've talked about is kind of analyzing these uh, these spaces in the home, uh, but beyond that too and how they reflect all these ideas. So when people recognize this and begin to design with these ideas in mind, they often try to, try to make people very comfortable. Oh, how can we kind of seek to... to tear down these these ideas or or subvert these kind of uh, social hierarchies, which is great, but also it does come with some of its own problems. Um, I know you and your thesis started to approach it from a different angle. Could Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what I approached in my thesis was this idea of almost, instead of trying to bring a place where everyone was comfortable, it was almost, how do I make someone, everyone who enters it, a little uncomfortable bringing out a sense of vulnerability where two people, two strangers are choosing to enter space together. So with this very specific experience that I was going for, I went to design an installation scale experience that was focused inside of a museum. And that was important within itself because what people do when they enter a museum is they make an a very obvious choice that they're going to experience art and that they might understand it and they might not. And the idea is that this installation was focused in the middle of kind of a common area in the museum. And when two people entered it, they were making a second choice to be vulnerable and to maybe gain something that they knew that they were going to meet a stranger and that was it. And that the idea was almost that you were going to experience three phases of a space that was going to introduce you to someone you had no idea who it was and that you were going to remain in control of your own personal space the entire time, and that you had a choice at the end to reconnect with the stranger or to leave entirely. But no one stripped your ability to maintain control over yourself. Yeah, it kind of gave you, like you said, you already sort of entered it because it was in a museum with this this kind of special sense of of what was expected of you and what you could expect to happen. And then by allowing people to have a choice, really physically, like you, you gave people a choice whether to open a panel to get a view or, or whether to go through a certain door or, or uh, experience a certain quality of space. That was all like a physical choice they had to make, not a, oh, let me think about it and then keep walking. Yeah. It was really like there was a physical response yeah. to that choice. You, let, you gave people space to, to think about their idea of themselves and their idea of how they belonged. And a lot of that related to what's my sense of my own personal space around me right now? Yeah, and that first phase that people entered into had that physical experience. Like, I'm going to push a wall. I'm going to push the ceiling up in order to pass through. And that physical action, that physical connection that you're making with the space was different than most any space that we're typically in. So it was a sense, it created the sense of like, this is unfamiliar to me and I'm not in control of this because I haven't experienced this type of space before. And then the second phase was almost this series of blocks that one person would walk on above the other person who was below them. And you would catch glimpses, the lighting would change as one person passed above the other. 
which created this sense of visual connection. There were breaks in the wall. So you could also hear the person walking in the space. So you could hear if they were running, if they were stomping really loud, how fast they were moving. And you were what, what it forced you to do is really tune into your other senses and connecting with another person in a space through things other than your gaze. You know, I'm gonna feel how this person feels in this space. And then the third phase of the project was a series of almost, if you can picture, glass panels. And as you moved your series of panels and the other person moved their series of panels, it was again another physical choice to slide things that brought you and one other person very, very close together. And the final moment was two people looking at each other through a clear glass panel that they would turn together almost like a revolving door. And then they would never actually touch or get to talk, but they would switch spots and then leave the installation the way that the other came in. And so it was this very intimate and close and unique experience that you had this, with this stranger without talking. Your last very brief moment was a clear vision of who they were. And then you leave. And at the end, you're let out on two different parts of the museum. And you have the choice to make the effort to go and find the other person, maybe strike up a conversation or whatnot. Or you can just leave and not have to come in contact with them again. Yeah, what's nice is it's the the choices that you have to make are inherent to the built architecture you you kind of can't go through it all the way without making a choice but they're not choices that they're choices that empower you uh to kind of think about yourself and think about this other person and if at the end you are really uncomfortable with it you can you're you're allowed to just disappear and and think about it by yourself and, and become comfortable but if you if you really have a connection with someone or or you've totally had a chance to rethink rethink your kind of social standing then y you can make this connection it it allows that it it uh the the built qualities allow that yeah i think it was that choice that i was going after that sense of overcoming vulnerability admitting to vulnerability which i think is almost a different thing than public spaces most people are in a way unconscious to their vulnerability, their power in space, which makes someone else who might be more conscious of their discomfort to be intimidated by that person because they're like, they don't understand why I'm uncomfortable, so I don't want to respond to them. Where in this moment, it was both people knew the other person was also being vulnerable, was also being uncomfortable, so they felt equal. Yeah, you were vulnerable together. Yeah. Yeah, it was really beautiful. I hope we can build it someday. That's my uh, goal. If there's any grants out there looking, yeah, please hit so. me up. <laughs> the drawings are great. <laughs> Let's make it real. What Builds Us is brought to you by Yesterday's Coffee. What person has the time to get up and make a new cup? And you sure as hell know you won't have time to make one tomorrow. So throw that cool down espresso in the fridge for some trash quality beverage tomorrow. Hey, Anything as long as you don't have to stand up more than once. Want to share your own gripe with us? Or maybe support the show in other ways? Support us financially. You can send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. Our Instagram is coalesce.design. And our website is coalescedesign.org slash whatbuildsus, where you can find images of the work that we've talked about and associated readings, like a blog post with a lot more deeper in-depth information and links where you can find out cooler things about everything we talked about. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Brian Sanford and Chantel Trombley. Mixing, mastering, and all the excellent music you heard is by our good friend Will Gooding. You can hear more music from him at thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. Last week when we talked about the mind and your perception of space and 
how that correlates to this week and this idea of this bubble around us. And next week, we're going to move up to 100 square feet. We're going to move a little bit bigger, take it outside, move, you know, grander squares. Grander squares. <laughs> grander squares. See you then. Bye. <laughs>